Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no ice work. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Yeah, taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> G'day there, Mark Kenny here with another episode of Democracy Sausage Extra. And guess what? It's the 150th episode of Democracy Sausage, which is quite a milestone, really. And it wouldn't be right to reach such a point without my regular partner through much of this, Dr. Maria Tafaga, who is on maternity leave for most of this year, but she's made a special exception to come back today, although not necessarily for the 150th, because I only just told her about that. Welcome back, Maria. Yes, and welcome. And um, yeah, well, thanks very much for um, for for reaching 150. Yeah, well, it, cool. it, it, it's come around quite quickly, actually, when you think that we started this whole process during the 2019 election campaign. and Which feels like a century ago. It does, and there's been a fair bit of uh, political water under the bridge since then. Maria, of course, is from the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU. Also with us is Sarah Ison from the West Australian's Parliament House Bureau. Sarah, welcome back to The Sausage. So good to be back. And the wonderful and scholarly Dr. Chris Wallace, biographer, insightful commentator and associate professor at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra. She's also a visiting fellow at the ANU, I believe, still. Is that correct, Chris? Absolutely. And welcome back to you. Greetings. Uh, Really great to have you along. Now, it just occurs to me, uh, just occurred to me as we were sort of gathering here today, uh, Maria's coming into us remotely from, from her home, but uh, that all four of us here uh, are ex-press gallery. We've all worked in Parliament House and uh, worked in the, in the uh, business of, of covering politics at various times. So that's really quite uh, just a coincidence, I suppose, but it puts us in a good position to talk about the issues that we're going to be talking about today, which is... Um, you know, the issue that's really dominated politics over the last six weeks or so, the issue of the treatment of women in politics uh, and and where they fit in and uh, what the attitudes of ministers has been, the, the way politics uh, is structured uh, and, uh, and all of those things have just been absolutely dominating the news. 
Scott Morrison's announced a reshuffle this week, so I'm keen to get your impressions as to whether you think this will have, you know, he's finally kind of recognised the depth of the problem and has he taken adequate action to um, to address it. What's your view, Sarah? Look, I think something needs to be done about Maurice Payne. Um, regardless of the criticism, I think it's a big deal that she's got those two huge portfolios. That's Foreign Affairs, which now in 2021, it's a really really heavy portfolio and she's trying to be minister for women. So I think having someone divided between those two portfolios was in and of itself not taking the portfolio of of women um, seriously enough. So what the PM did rather than move her on um, was keep her as sort of this head of the um, – of the portfolio, but then sort of divvy up all of these responsibilities in terms of women's economic security, women's safety, and so on to other women. So Jane Hume is doing the economic side, um, Anne Rustin, the safety. Interestingly, Amanda Stoker is the assistant minister for women. And overnight, we've heard Grace Tame, the Australian of the Year, have some pretty strong criticism about that. So I think we're already seeing some undermining of what's meant to be this, you know, really wholehearted focus to to the issue and to the portfolio and a lot of division. And I think that's going to continue for the next few months and, and until the next election. So it's a step in the right direction, I think, whether or not it it will sort of work and not just be plagued by these divisions and so on, I'm I'm not quite sure. And I have a bit of cynicism regarding some of those appointments. It would be wonderful if this was the transformative move by Scott Morrison to make his government uh, more responsive to and attentive to the dire situation of women under his government. Uh, I wish it was going to be a blindingly excellent success, but what are the odds when the so-called Prime Minister for Women is the disempowered former Minister for Women, who now just kind of gets a bigger and better uh, suite of formal responsibilities with lots of people to help her. If she was ineffective before, why would she be more effective now, particularly with the wide views amongst the people reporting to her, the women reporting to her, to help her, uh, many of whom have quite significantly anti-feminist stances. So, Mark, you know, if you look at the history of conservatism of Australia since the mid-1990s when a concerted effort was to drive was made to drive moderates out of the Liberal Party, um, you'd have to say Maurice Payne, who's a tremendously nice person, like mm. a genuinely really nice person, known for, you know, 30 years, terrific, terrific person and really has good values, you know, within the context of her political party. She's not alone in being a moderate that has failed to throw their weight around and get some moderate outcomes in terms of policy within a conservative administration. This goes all the way back to John Howard very cleverly appointing Amanda Vanstone, leading loud moderate uh, at the time in the 90s to the education portfolio and making her carry the can of doing the first big massive set of cuts to higher education spending. And this has been the pattern since the mid-90s. You put the moderates in the sensitive job, you kind of well, it's an old trick, though. Sorry, Chris. It's an old trick that's been used in politics before then. I remember Bob Hawke appointing Brian Howe as Social Security Minister, so putting a senior left figure in a portfolio and 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 making that uh, you know in, making him in charge of um, welfare cuts, for example. Well, I don't think it was a trick in Brian Howe's case because Brian Howe was a tremendously successful Social Security Minister. I'm glad you brought up the Hawke government because what it did was had a broad representation of views within cabinet. 
Bob Hawke as Prime Minister gave each minister their head. They developed good policy within a strategic framework and there was a you know a broad position that, that suited the Labor movement's uh, views and, and the Australians who voted Labor and many more people. Uh, what you get now is key Liberal moderates being put in sensitive jobs and in the interests of their career having to kind of swallow the conservative gr- grenade, do nothing moderate, uh, prove their druthers as conservative politicians by either doing nothing, as we've seen from Maurice Payne over the last several weeks, or, you know, kind of just disappearing from the whole agenda. Um, it's really not good enough. The, Graham Richardson, you know. Whatever a, it takes, Graham. Yeah. A brilliant analyst in some respects, and I'd point to his incredible insight that if you want to be powerful, act powerfully. So all those liberal moderates over the last 25 years who've just sat on their patooties and done nothing and happily enjoying career promotion and long runs as senior ministers as a result of doing nothing and shutting up. Well, I think they've done a der- terrible damage to themselves, to Australia, and to the alternative, you know, t- to the conservative cause in Australia, which has never been purely conservative. It has always had a smaller liberal stream. Mm. And to the extent that they have not done what Graham Richards said, Richardson said and use their muscle to get some results, throw their weight around and increase their power, but instead give it all away in, in the interest of career advancement. It is a tragedy for the Liberal Party. I think it's very bad for the Morrison government right now and it's not been good for Australia. Well, I think the the moderates would sort of argue that they have achieved wins behind the, the scenes. Um, the, the problem with that perception is, of course, is that, you know, people think they haven't achieved anything or, you know, it could have been much worse. I was disappointed to see that the government didn't um, seriously re-engage with introducing or reintroducing rather um, gender budgeting, which is exactly, um, which was an initiative of the Hawke-Keating government to have a sort of gender lens across each line of budget spending. um, And that was removed by the Abbott government when they first uh, came into office in in 2013, 2014. Um, I think that would have been a really clear signal that um, these changes to the cabinet uh, were serious. Um, At the moment, I think Scott Morrison is in a position where he can't really do enough to satisfy his critics and he is probably already enraged his supporters by adding, um, you know, all of these sort of female-badged titles to um, ministers that sort of ministries that already exist. I think the most interesting thing about the reshuffle is that it brought in like virtually no new talent that Morrison's game plan of making no enemies by making no demotions uh, is still in place and, yeah, I was surprised to see that, for example, Sarah Henderson wasn't potentially brought into Cabinet um, or to the outer ministry, um, and that Jane Hume, who has done a lot of defending of this government, uh, was not rewarded for that either. Yeah, well, uh, one of the problems it seems to me politically is that it's it's all come quite late in the piece. If we think about how long this has been going on for, we think about Scott Morrison's initial position. I mean, let, let's think about first the, the major uh, messages that come out of this reshuffle, um, the moving out of, from Attorney Generals of Christian Porter. Obviously, he's under a cloud, under a, you know some sort of investigation at the moment, which he rigorously denies, but nonetheless, um, there was and there always has been, it seems to me, uh, reasonable cover for the Prime Minister to say he's the first law officer that has a very high bar in terms of public confidence and integrity and he could have easily moved him aside from that position early on. That would have taken a lot of heat out of out of the issue. 
That has now happened, and we've seen, as as you've all commented, uh, Maurice Payne, the the women, uh, minister for women, put in charge of this this new cabinet task force, uh, and 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 all of these other sort of sub ministries named under that, and all of the women ministers involved in that committee, in that cabinet committee. So, you know, Morrison's trying to uh, to do all these things to show that he's he, he now sort of gets it, but it's really come a month, six weeks into a long term crisis. So. That raises the question, uh, you know, is his heart in it and and will people buy it? You know, will people buy that this has happened for the right reasons or has it happened because, you know, a succession of news polls have come along and shown his approval rating now starting to drop. Uh, the the two-party preferred position of the government is now a couple of points behind Labor. Um, is that the reason and will people buy it? Yeah, well, I think the big question about you know, will people buy it and that cynicism? I think this was brought up by Mark Riley at the end of that press conference with the PM was the elephant in the room, which was Andrew Lamming. And that's, you know, the PM not saying, oh, look, I, he shouldn't be part of the Liberal Party and et cetera. Like a lot of people are calling for a stronger stance on that. And, and Riley really got into him. It was the last question of the press conference saying you could stand there at this podium right now and say, I don't want this man in the Liberal Party. Um, don't you see that? making these appointments and saying, I'm listening to women, I'm listening to women, while not saying that when women in your party have said, I'm uncomfortable with Lamming returning and being around the party table. Don't you see how that's cynical? Like we could be cynical. Don't you see how it does seem like sort of, you know, just signalling and words? And the PM didn't really address it, didn't engage in that question. He kind of answered the question, you know, the the different question really, saying what is being done, which was that Lamming's taking some kind of counselling training and he's um, he's not going to recontest the next election. And essentially that's that's where that ends was his response. And then he left huffily. He did have a bit of a huff. It was a bit of a huff, yeah. So, And then someone tweeted to me, good question, Mark Kenny, and I thought, well, I wasn't even there. Oh, he looked too much <laughs> like Riley. Yeah, so I think, you know, and unfortunately there always has been some kind of something in these big presses that undermine the PM. Last time it was the, you know, him him retaliating with bringing up the News Corp complaint, um, mm. which really blew up in his face. Yeah. This time it's journalists saying, but, mate, you know, you've got this really poorly behaving Liberal MP that is still going to be in your party and women in your party don't want and he's kind of not engaging with that question. So unfortunately even when he does say he's listening and so on, there is that sense of something else is hanging overhead, something has undermined it. It's a two step, it's a one step forward, two steps back moment and there hasn't been a, a moment free from that in the whole kind of six weeks that they've been tackling these issues. So you're right, Mark, he acted way, way too late and he's now done something, but what is it? So he's thrown a whole lot of shiny stuff against the wall for women to go, wow, look, shiny things. And that's the new, you know, Prime Minister for Women, Maurice Payne and all her sidekicks, you know, very doubtful anything much is going to change. But there's been this incredible stroke of cunning in the reshuffle that has been pretty much totally missed. It is no demotion to be moved from Attorney General to industry. Industry historically is one of the major portfolios in the federal government. At worst, you'd call it a sideways move. Well, he's it's no a, longer leader of the government in the House. Yeah, this but that, that's, Porter, that, that's a whole lot he's of He's no longer got industrial let's relations. Look, let's focus on the portfolios for a minute. He's done a classic ScoMo. He's moved the man sideways and he has actually demoted the woman. 
There is no question that Linda Reynolds moving from defence to governance, government services and disability services, that's a big demotion from defence. I, I agree, and I'm not here to defend it, but, but she was the one who wanted to move in that case, as we understand it. Is that not right? Well, I'll let people work out for themselves whether they can trust what's coming out of the government on that. But I want to come to Maria's point about moderates operating in the way that Maurice Payne has over the last several weeks in order to achieve better things behind the scenes. That is the theory. What's the practice? Where are these great moderate gains that are supposedly achieved by operating quietly in the background? They're non-existent. Uh, that cracking uh, Peter Harcher story a couple of weeks ago when he got uh, details of the WhatsApp group messaging going on within the LNP women's group. Mm. I mean, it was pathetic. I've seen lively as CWA meeting minutes. <laughs> um, and there's a real-time experiment going on now between the New South Wales coalition government and the, and the federal coalition government, which shows the compare and contrast. So, mm. you know, the two moderate faction leaders in Sydney are Trent Zimmerman, the federal member for North Sydney, and Matt Keane, the Berejiklian government environment minister. Now, Matt Keane is a bald-headed, out-there-going-for-it, you know, soft green environmental policy guy, out loud, you know, really kicking a lot of goals. Front-footed, yeah. For the Berejiklian government in this area. Uh, in contrast, you've got Trent Zimmerman who favours the the tactic that Maria described, you know, go softly, go be behind the scenes, don't upset anybody and you achieve more. Well, what's been achieved federally in terms of environment policy by the Trent Zimmerman approach compared to the Matt Keane approach? Mm. I mean, it's shocking it is absolutely shocking the inaction among liberal female members of the Morrison ministry over the last five or six weeks. And, you know, she's still there. Brittany Higgins, I mean, what are yeah. they all doing for Brittany Higgins? Anything? But what the, well, the real question is, well, why is that the case, right? And and if you look at the institutional arrangement of the Liberal Party, it becomes pretty obvious, you know, like politics is a masculine space and has only very, very, very slowly started to quote-unquote feminise and that allows all kinds of informal and formalised structures to kind of exist. The, the difference between Labor and the Liberal Party is that the Labor Party has made um, uh, changes to their formal structures, i.e. the way their quota operates. The, the reason why that quota works so well is because it creates a collective action problem that uh, the factional bosses have to resolve lest they face threats to, you know, their preferred candidates in their seats, right, um, which has over time helped to sort of shift the dial on some aspects of the informal culture of that party. And that hasn't happened in the Liberal party. The structures of that party remain roughly as they were in the 40s um, when they were laid down. And so whilst, you know, historically the Liberal Party has performed better on women, has been more welcoming to women, has been an easier environment for women to wield power, generally and typically as kingmakers behind... You mean, you mean Labor, not Liberal? No, I mean historically, um, you know, the oh, Liberal you mean party relative to their own performance, the Liberals have done better in the past? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, but also to Labor, you know, like the. Yeah, I think the that's a big call, Maria. Yeah. To which which yeah, moment was that? Sorry, like Detail. they they elected the first women to Parliament. They had the first cabinet ministers. Um, you know, they had more women in Parliament up until the a shift. Um, in which sort of occurred in the eighties as a result of second wave feminism. You know. Yeah, that's a bunch um, of firsts, but not policies. And. Uh, I mean, look, Labor bit the bullet on quotas. Initially, Labor women opposed quotas 
But they've been a tremendous success. And if you're saying, Maria, that the Liberal and National Parties desperately need quotas, I'm 100% with you. Bring it on. Yes, yeah, so that is what I'm saying. I, that's what, I guess what I'm saying is, is that why is it that these women feel compromised that they can't speak? It's because the institution in which they operate in is is extremely hostile. And there's a number of women, of course, who are in, in senior liberal women who are actually opposed to quotas still, and they you know they make noises about this from time to time. Let's take a very quick break, just because we need to, and we'll be back in a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, uh, we were talking before about quotas. Maria, you were saying that uh, historically the Liberal Party did have more women coming through or at least it had, had a, um, an ability for women to come through in a way that perhaps wasn't the case with some of the uh, – on the Labor side because it was, you know, very – I presume you're saying it had a very strong kind of um, – Started u- by unions, which were, you know, a hugely masculine organisation. Yeah which saw women as a threat because they undermined the wages of men. But then, labor, you know, as you say, second wave feminism uh, in the 90s, Labor adopts quotas and we now have a situation where Labor's, you know, roughly around 50-50 in terms of its parliamentary representation. That's going to move around a bit, of course, because you don't decide yourself who wins which seats at an election, but um, that certainly the policy seems to be functionally working. The Libs, on the other hand, have steadfastly refused this. Nonetheless... This whole crisis has come along and it seems to have, you know, grabbed the, the, the government by the shoulders and is shaking it up and uh, some people get it and some people don't. Mm. Tell me what you think about um, – because th- th- I, I started off saying that there were some, you know, big messages or at least intended messages in what Scott Morrison's done on Monday with this reshuffle. One of them that I think is quite significant um, is the move of Karen Andrews into home affairs. Andrews uh, becomes well. I mean, let's face it. Home Affairs is a mega portfolio. It has, uh, you know, very um, strong national security implications. It makes her a member of the National Security Committee of Cabinet. Um, AFP reports to the Home, the, the Australian Federal Police reports to the Home Affairs Minister. Various other security security agencies, cyber security, immigration, and a whole number of other things. It's quite significant having a woman in that position. Admittedly. We've seen a woman move out of defence because uh, Andrews replaces uh, Dutton and Dutton has gone to defence in, in, in Linda Reynolds' old job. But is, is, that's, a, that's a pretty significant move. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one that it wasn't our top line reporting on it from the gallery, 
But I think that is really significant. Is like Chris was saying, like the sparkles and the big like thing was like, oh, this women's cabinet and blah blah. But what that achieves in practice, I think, as you were saying, Chris, is is going to be the question. The move from um, industry to home affairs by Karen Andrews, I think, yeah, is really significant. It's not something that was, you know, too much of the hey, look over here, this is the focus. But I think in kind of practicality. It, it is going to – I think it's going to be really interesting to see. Um, I, you know, I've done a lot of reporting on um, what has Karen Anders has been doing in industry and science and technology and have been, um, you know, I think quite impressed with her performance. She's uh, only the second or third woman to have graduated with an engineering degree from UQ and she's really impressive, she's right? She's one of the she, – she, she was the first to do so with another Karen apparently. Yes, that's yes. something like – well done, in, yeah. In 1983, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wow. Um, so I'm. I think as a as a woman, um, and you know, as a performer, she's really strong. I think it's going to be interesting. I'm real interested to see how she's going to try and tackle this portfolio. She's so different to Dutton. She's so so different in terms yes, of yes, Dutton being that, this like a, like almost a attack dog kind of vibe. Well, well, he's the he's the unquestionably the hard man of the government. Totally. Right? An unrivaled position that he has. He's the mm. leader of the national right. Um, he's a, a magnet for, for for criticism from from the left. He moves into defence. Border protection, uh, the whole immigration regime that this government's run has been one of its absolute, you know, kind of key pillars. Um, it will be interesting to see. And this goes, I think, Chris, uh, very, very closely to, to, to sort of some of the points you've been making. It will be interesting to see if she is genuinely in that portfolio and has command of that portfolio in the way that Dutton had or whether... And let's not forget, of course, that Morrison himself was is a former immigration minister and has the trophy on his desk. I stopped these with the silhouette of the the fishing boat. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether there is that uh, ability. She's given the space to stamp her authority on that job, or whether she is more like Maurice Payne in her capacity as Minister for Women, and that is, you know, essentially staying within the tram lines. Mm. I think it's the most interesting part of the reshuffle, actually. I, I didn't know she had an engineering background. That has really made me so happy. We need many more women engineers everywhere. Um, she is a fascinating figure, and I think she's going to take that portfolio by the scruff of the neck. I don't know whether she'll make it more or less conservative, but she's going to make her presence felt fairly massively. And the reason we know that is she has been virtually alone among the Morrison government ministers who has spoken out strongly against the dire culture we've seen yes. so much evidence from from the last five weeks. She mm. did not hold back. Now, Mark, yes, she was a bit late to it, but not as late as Morrison, mm. and she spoke compellingly. I, I was convinced. Um, in terms of her appointment to Home Affairs itself, there was a massive sigh of relief across Canberra, mm. because the rumour was that Stuart Robert was going to get it. Oh, yes, of course. That and, was, yeah. You know, that, that would have been a merit appointment, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> wicked, Mark, wicked. Um, so thank God Karen Andrews got it instead. Uh, and Which in, actually is a merit appointment because mm, she totally. does seem to know yeah. what she's doing. I, yeah. I think she's going to be very, very interesting in that portfolio. Yeah. But I also think, thank God, someone is going to do something with defence. Now, I'm not a huge Dutton fan, mm. but he is a person that can actually impact. And get stuff done, right? And get stuff done. And defence needs the rotor router through it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a mess. You know, full cycle docking has been, should have been announced Christmas 2019 or something. and The subs contract that's going to deliver our subs, you know, way out into the 25th century. Yeah. Um, mm. 
I, I eighty mean, billion, eighty to a hundred billion dollar investment. We're not seeing the first of them yeah, until the mid twenty thirty. It's a very troubled portfolio. It needs someone to get it by the scruff of the neck. Definitely. And if Dutton can do that, good for Dutton. It's a bit of a graveyard for ministers too, really. I mean, there've been plenty of defence ministers over time that have, uh, yeah, you know, um, left six, in six and eight years. We've got defence ministers. I believe Maurice Payne is the only one to actually move out uh, out of that portfolio into into a you know into a better one, basically. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. But, uh, you know, as we've been saying, Maurice Payne hasn't exactly set the world on fire as women's minister. Mm. And really, I don't think she's done a single press conference during, during this whole- That's what I was going to say when we were talking about this sort of systemic thing that, like, you know, that keep your head down vibe. Sure enough, that, that makes sense. Um, and I understand there are times when Payne, particularly on the foreign affairs um, portfolio, has done that. And that's fair enough, I reckon. There are times when she's been more quiet on some foreign affairs things and maybe she's discussing stuff with countries behind the scenes. Fair. This has been the most, you know, like visual vocal time, you know, in terms of women's issues over two months and she's not held one press conference. The, the, the point where people got her was her on the way to the lifts in the press gallery coming away from a, you know, an ABC interview. She said she'd do a doorstop. She didn't. She ran away. And as she was going into the lift, pressing the lift button, the camos were running after her, the cameras on their back and went, hey, 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 why are you going? It was, it was, and then, you know, she left this doorstop by getting into a lift. You yeah. know, well, it doesn't really inspire confidence, Maria, does it, that she's going to head – She, I mean, the, the Prime Minister described her at one stage in the press conference as now the Prime Minister for women, which mm. left the, open the question, is he just the Prime Minister for men? <laughs> he then changed that to say she's the primary minister for women and in this capacity is heading this new cabinet task force of all female ministers, which will include, by the way, the Prime Minister with whom she will co-chair this task force and uh, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, and the Finance Minister, Simon Birmingham, too, I think of the, you know, more modern and, you know, perhaps more enlightened minister, male ministers in, in, the, uh, in the government. Um, but it doesn't – her performance as women's minister doesn't automatically inspire a sense of her really taking charge of this issue. Well, without ever having met Maurice Payne um, – I guess I would say two things about this. Like the first is um, I think there is a tendency for us to conflate ministerial competence with media competence. And I I agree with the criticisms of Maurice Payne that she is probably not media forward enough, right? This new cabinet uh, committee, like with the ear of the prime minister and the finance minister, is potentially a really good opportunity for women in the Liberal Party to really push forward a women's agenda from a liberal feminist perspective, right? So that would be sort of some of the things we've already kind of seen, an emphasis on women in leadership positions, uh, ways of mentoring women, that kind of stuff, perhaps some aspects of financial security, right? So it's, it's it's not the case that this cabinet committee um, will potentially go nowhere. Being a female-dominated committee with a very attentive prime minister and finance minister may actually see some really positive changes. But it kind of goes to Chris's point um, earlier, which is which was sort of the point I was trying to make um, earlier in, in, in the show, which was that 
a key difference between the Liberal and Labor parties was that Labor women were were pretty bolshy. They took on their institution. They worked out how it functioned and they basically gamed that system, the factional system, to get through their quota rule changes, which has then led to more institutional changes. And one of the real challenges with the Liberal Party is that amongst the women themselves, they don't necessarily agree about how to take forward, um, you know, the women's equality agenda. Um, so so that is actually, I think, the major kind of sticking point because everyone in this government is essentially saying, to, asking the women to resolve these issues by setting up these kinds of structures. But if the women themselves can't agree on how to take that um, agenda forward, they may actually miss this window of opportunity and suffer for it for another 25 years. Yeah, this is, the this is I think, the really interesting point here politically, Chris, and that is that uh, going to your point and to what Maria's been saying about, you know, the, the reluctance of women to push forward and to create trouble within their institution, within their party, therefore within the government, uh, because of how it might reflect on them and how it might be seen as causing sort of aggregate damage to the government. That equation has changed. The aggregate damage being done to the government at the moment is that voters are recognising the government doesn't represent the breadth of the community. And it's for women now to, in a sense, as has often fallen to women in, in politics, to kind of rescue their institution, to step forward and to take charge and to modernise this party and make it more representative. This task force has that responsibility. That's the, op- that's the opportunity that sits before them. It's a massive opportunity, but, but it's not the opportunity, in my view, that's going to work. There's this huge moment for Scott Morrison to seize hold of and himself become the champion for gender quotas in the LNP. You know, if only he would wake up and see that that is the potential masterstroke in his hand. Now, it wouldn't affect him or his government because it would be grandfathered. It takes years for this sort of thing to have any impact. Indeed, yeah. Um, there's, there's plenty of models out there by which the the LNP could do it respectably. It's just this obvious moment for him to do that. It would cost him nothing politically. He'd tell all his own MPs, none of you will be affected. It's only going to affect the future. Yeah. It'd give him something to barnstorm Australia with in relation to women. And it's not as though, you know, parity, gender parity in party rooms solves everything. It's a, But it is a necessary, if not sufficient, and, and platform it's... on which to build other things. And it's a, the PM as a man doing, you know, taking it into his own hands and doing something. So I agree, obviously, women to to um, spearhead this is is necessary. Women's voices and perspective, necessary. But leaving it just to being like, okay, task force, you figure it out. I just think, you know, it needs to be, you know, men also being like, no, I this is wrong. This is, you know, women are facing crap or whatever. Here's this big thing I am doing as a man. Like I you know, in, in reflecting on the reshuffle this week, um, wrote a, a column for Tuesday that I reflected on this time when, um, as an anecdote, I was in a restaurant with a bunch of men, a man made a rape joke at me, and it was the all the other men who went, that's not okay, and we're telling you to get out, and we're telling you, not leaving it to me, mm. not giving me the space to go, hey, you know, that's not okay, and leaving me to do it by myself. It was all these other dudes, I was the only woman there who just went, shut up. Mm. leave and they weren't fighting my battles for me or whatever but so this is a really tricky debate and I know people sit on very different sides of it in terms of the place of you know men's voices and men's action but I think it needs to be incorporated especially when the prime minister of our country is a man and I think it's great to hear the perspectives of women in a, in a task force and a cabinet but to go yep 
But, you know, I'm the PM, I'm a leader, and I don't have to be a woman to understand that this isn't working and here's this big measure that I'm going to do, you know? Like, I just think that's necessary. I think this is the point. This is the point. The politics for him here is is really difficult, not only because he is effectively learning it, right? That's quite become quite apparent. And so, you know, having a cabinet where women are dominant in it and, you know, effectively an opportunity for him to do some potential listening rather than talking might be an actual step up given that the fora in which these women have found themselves recently are ones in which they are, you know, outnumbered and discouraged, right? But it sort of goes to the point about what you've just sort of said, which is, well, that's sort of behind where the community is at because mm. the community was doing special spaces for women in the 80s mm. or the <laughs> 90s, right? And so I think it sort of hangs a lantern on it. The other thing I would say is that we're without Scott Morrison really using all of his prime ministerial authority, the reality of a very loosely um, structured Liberal Party, right? It's, it's, it's a federated party with an extremely weak centre, so, you know, he's actually quite uh, powerless to force state divisions to do anything. But without his strong kind of moral, I want this to happen, it probably won't happen, right? Or it will happen patchily across the country. And for it to have any cut through, it needs to have a level. People need to believe that he believes, right? Belief mm. is important in politics. And, and Morrison himself knows this because they've traded on this idea, say, in the, in the question of um, asylum seeker policy, border protection, that Labor's heart is not in it. Don't listen to what they say about stopping the boats. Their heart's not in it. When they get back in, they'll, 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 mm. they, you know, they'll, they'll send the wrong signals and the people smugglers will, will take it. You know, that's been a, a sort of a, a message that has, uh, Scott Morrison and Dutton and others have used for a long time, and it's about belief. And the same thing would be, you know, whether they whether Labor is good with money or whatever. Well, this is a case, right, where voters need to believe that the Prime Minister gets this, understands this, and it's from you know from the very basic uh, elements of society right through all of its structures. And the question is, does he? Well, taking six weeks to make these changes hasn't helped in that process, no, I wouldn't have thought. No, and throwing, like I said, that complaint about like, oh, yeah, we've got complaints in the government and have a bad culture, but hey, you, the journalists, and you, the media also, here's a an anonymous HR complaint I'm now going to put on live TV that I've conflated <laughs> and got wrong. Yeah, you're right, and probably that, that whole heart in the right place, do we believe him? Absolutely not. And then again, as I point to again the Andrew Lamming case, it's this sense of really convincing people and with always having those undermining things, you're not. You're gonna. Like it just seems like it's all words and not that like inner absolutely get it, act on it in principle belief. It's still a numbers game. It's still not wanting to fall into minority government. It's still all of that and that's what is easy to focus on, be cynical of and wonder if what has been announced, what has been done is really going to have any effect. Well, one of the, the insights from, from political science research into gender representation in legislatures, right, is that descriptive representation, i.e. how many women you have in the room, is not the same as substantive representation, i.e. the policies that are enacted. And, you know, I think there is, a, as everyone has said, a high degree of cynicism around some of his descriptive representation changes. And so the only way he is going to convince the cohort of women who are open to forgiving him, right, because there's obviously a cohort that it doesn't matter what he does, they're not interested, mm -hmm. um, is in this, his substantive changes and that means spending money and that means shifting government priorities and that means policy changes that 
are likely to upset core parts of his constituency because they upend sort of ideas and norms we have about how social structures operate and how this, the economy should work, right? Effectively, that's what we're talking about here or who gets to have more power. It would take Morrison to reverse his own ideology to do that. Mm. I can tell you what's going to happen. This, this cabinet committee is going to meet and what they'll do is they'll come up with an announcement in the budget like a doubling of the previous tiny package for women that was in the previous government and it will enable the Prime Minister to go, see, we've doubled dedicated spending on women in the budget. Mm. Ideologically, it is this is never going to happen, right? It's just never, ever going to happen. And Mark, you drew equation, a, attention to the, the changed mathematics of the political situation Morrison now faces where this is a problem for him. It's an, it's an acute, now major problem that he's not on top of still. But this comes, you know, as, as the latest dramatic episode in a very long-run chronic problem that has seen moderate, smaller liberal women who would normally get elected and sit in the Liberal Party room instead sit on the crossbenches. Mm. Helen Haynes in Indi, Rebecca Sharkey in Mayo. Uh, there's another one. Zali Stegel. Zali Stegel in Warringah. Thank you. So, it, you know, the evidence of the, more, of the chronic underlying problem is on the crossbench they're looking at them every day. Now, can the Liberal and National Parties do the maths on this? They've got a chronic problem. They've got an acute problem. They're not solving it. Can those uh, – here's an interesting question. We're, we're getting short of time, but um, you raised the, the crossbench. Could those crossbench women put pressure on the government? I mean, they've uh, in some cases uh, effectively guaranteed supply to the government, um, so confidence and supply. So uh, they're – you know, we, we now have a government – with the departure of the potential departure of lambing, uh, it goes further into minority status. Could they demand that uh, the, the prime minister acts on this question of lambing, for example, on the basis of those uh, you know the, the the stories that have come out? The potential's there, but the there's no suggestion that's that's going to happen. Mm. I mean, these are essentially small C conservatives in in you know quite conservative seats who want to hold on to their seats. They are politicians, mm. uh, and sure, so they're but not, they're not proposing to bring the government down. What they're saying is, uh, you have to be true to these values. You yeah. say you, you say you represent these values. You've I, got a member of your team now who's, you know, openly. I would love to think it was possible. Mm. If if I were a an independent on the cross bench, I would be rounding up the other independents to, say, hey, to, to do go. to do just that. But that's that's not going to happen. I think actually more likely is the possibility that Karen Andrews from her position of being liberated and now speaking out publicly in, mm. in quite a strong way, like in it. a way that's difficult for the government, I think she could emerge as the strong voice within Cabinet. Mm. I think she could put pain and her, you know, portfolio mates aside and actually emerge. And, you know, when I saw her the other day speaking out strongly against this blokey culture in the mm. LNP, I thought, wow, this this woman has a bit of the leadership yeah, thing in her. And I'm wondering whether she could emerge over time as as a, the first serious potential female leadership candidate for the LNP in Canberra. I think Karen Andrews is one to watch. Mm, definitely. And I think, I mean, on the crossbench, nothing would surprise me necessarily because we're in this, hate to use the word unprecedented, I'm using the word unprecedented, unprecedented time where, you know, just the news cycle itself, we're used to something being in the news for a day, three days a week, it's been six weeks, right? It's like so huge, this momentum. So is it out of the question that... Um, potentially, or the crossbench could go, hey, we're going to band together. 
I don't know, but also all of these women, all of the crossbench, um, have really specific sort of flags that they're waving on other stuff. They're representing, you know, you know, South Australia or climate change or something. Integrity and it, commission. All of this stuff that they probably don't want to put at risk and that they have been championing for so long as these kind of independent voices. Mm. And I don't know if leaving all that to the wayside so we can all band together on this one thing could happen because of how they yeah, how they've championed those very specific issues that are quite different to each other, you know. Now, a final question, uh, which is a change of uh, change of direction. Uh, Labor's been having its uh, national conference. Now, this is normally a big deal, only happens once a term. This has almost gone under the radar. It's a Zoom conference for the most part, so that's one of the reasons. It doesn't have all the kind of hoopla that, uh, that these things normally do. Um, Chris, the whole political equation has changed a bit. I mean, before all this started six weeks ago, there was a degree of pressure on Anthony Albanese. People were talking about the possibility of a spring election. Morrison was in a, you know, supposedly dominant position and therefore that was a, a, a live option. No one's really talking about that now. Um, Harold Macmillan, of course, famously said, or perhaps apocryphally said, events, dear boy, events, that's what could, you know, change fortunes. Certainly the fortunes have changed at the moment. Um, do you do you get that sense that the, that Labor suddenly feels like it's back in the game? Definitely, absolutely right, Mark. The thing is, I, I wonder whether we're getting a rerun of the news poll shortened phenomenon. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never seen a worst five or six weeks for a federal government in a sustained way ever. Now, admittedly, I wasn't here during the dismissal, but for that period of dire politics for a government to happen and for only to lead to it being behind 48-52 two-party preferred is to me an astonishing result for the government. And that says that's that's to do with Labor's low primary vote still. That's right. And uh, so I think the atmospherics are yielding great comfort to the Labor Party in terms of the electability of their current uh, regime. But I think, you know, either news poll has jumped the shark and it's now just got to be completely ignored. It's wrong, it's useless, put it in the bin – or that is a actually quite good result for Morrison, something he would take massive heart from and be telling his own colleagues, guys, you know, we can fight back easily from 4852. Mm. Governments have done it historically so often. So, you know, are we lining up for another unnecessarily Labor election loss driven by news poll delivering better results for Labor than the reality uh, has is the case? Well, if we think about this from a sort of, you know, voting behaviour perspective, most most people vote on the, the economy, right? And this issue is a bit like climate change. Like if you ask people directly, are you concerned about it? They'll say, yes, I am. But will it shift votes? Well, no, it doesn't necessarily do that. I think where this issue is interesting is that we, we do see that women uh, vote like and their votes sort of shift around quite volatilely, but it really matters which women in which electorates, and it really matters if this issue about does the prime minister get it translate into so therefore they can run the economy, therefore they can look after my interests or my interests in my family or my interests in my children, and I think that's the kind of the point, right? Like this has. Um, really uh, taken a dent to the government's competence. I think for some voters perhaps reinforced um, some ideas or feelings they had about them that arose during the bushfires. But it, it is really up to Labor and the government really to to link or keep it separate from the kind of core issues about 
what will decide the next election, which is, you know, what does the 2020s look like? What will Australia look like in 2030? How do we guarantee prosperity? Yeah, I think all of those points are right, but I do think the it, it, some of it turns on the government's ability to neutralise this issue. I, I don't fully agree that it won't change votes. I think mm. the, the the shift in votes that we see, if there, if let's assume for a moment that the news poll is accurate, I think the shift we can see in the decline of the PM's approval rating and the decline, uh, you know, the forty-eight fifty-two uh, uh, losing position that they're in at the moment is probably a lot of women shifting away from uh, from the government. Now, mm. if if Morrison can neutralise that over time with all of this architecture that he's announced and a few a few announcements and 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 sort of you know does that enough, then I suppose it can be um, muted as an issue. But I do think potentially it's a game changer in politics. Yeah. Mark, I've got, I've just got to pick you up on news poll. The net approval rating for the Prime Minister is plus 15. Yeah. The net approval rating for the opposition leader is plus two. Mm. And that's against the backdrop of the last five or six weeks. That's that's telling us something. The other yeah, thing is essential poll that. has shown that, as Catherine Murphy from The Guardian, you know, put it, the Prime Minister is speaking exclusively in his public communications to men who might switch to Labor. And in the essential no, poll, good, when you yeah. saw the vote by gender, male voters are continuing to support Scott Morrison and is at the pre-existing level to this crisis. Mm. Support amongst women has plunged. Yeah. Now, the last election was so tight. You know, th- this is the Labor Party analysis that would go, yeah, let's keep doing what we're doing exactly and not, not make any changes. Um, it was so tight, it would only take a small amount of voters to switch and those voters would be small L liberal, moderate you know, LNP voting women who are disgusted by the government's approach to this obvious chronic problem. So, you know, you can make a good case with the polling both ways. Mm. And of course, that means we know nothing, doesn't it? That's sort of my, my point, right? Like, it's not that I don't think this issue is important. Of course, it, of course it is, but it's not it's not doesn't translate uh, neatly into voting intention. It's a more complex uh, issue domain and the way it links up with the core reasons why people vote the way they do, that that is a bit of a complicated kind of um, story. Whereas, you know, if you just ask people, is the, the government running the economy well? Yes, no. The certainty of predicting how they'll vote is quite good from that. This issue is more complicated. So it's an opportunity for Labor and it, it is dangerous for the government. Mm, I, I don't think... Labor is thinking that oh we've got this now we're gonna you know we're gonna win I don't think they're ever gonna have that kind of confidence in polls as they up to the last never election again. never again yeah. essentially right but it is cool and good to see kind of this fire back in Labor because I think obviously after that election there was a real you know it was so disheartened and disappointed and it's taken a long time for there to be, you know, a, a sort of sense of let's do this and then, you know, had to then there was all this, oh, do we have the right leader, et cetera. And now there's actually this kind of thing of an opposition where there's not really any leadership talk and they're all just really honing in on the government as, you know, the opposition should. I'm not saying that they're going to, you know, definitely win, but they kind of, I think, feel, I think the term you use, Mark, was back in the game, mm. right? So now it's actually back in a, it is a fight. It's not a, oh, we're probably going to lose the next election because incumbent governments, COVID-19, blah, blah. It's Maybe we have a shot. Not maybe we're going to win. You know, we, we definitely. But maybe it's going to be. You know, I, I think it's just cool to see that that fight back. And I don't know. I think 
Regarding women's issues and how it changes votes, I don't know a lot of that sort of, I guess, the the data and the, the sort of stuff that shows pe- how people vote about those policy issues. But what I'm trying to say is Morrison as a person as well, I think some of the stuff he's said and done, some of the stuff that's been reported in international outlets about him basically not in these exact words but saying female protesters were lucky to not be met with bullets, mm. things like that. It's just, it's, you know, I think in terms of the man himself, if he, you know, this kind of unpopularity, who he is, the the missteps, the apologies, all this thing, I think that's really damaging regardless of maybe, you know, the women's issues exactly, but how many missteps he's taken, how many, you know, potentially quite embarrassing things he's done. I think that could have a real effect to, to well, people going, right. I don't want him in. I don't want this guy leading Australia and New York Times saying, oh. It just could be that women simply stop listening. Yeah, yeah, that's going to, it's going to be interesting. And we're going to be, of course, tracking all of this uh, on Democracy Sausage between now and the election. And uh, it's just been terrific to be talking. It's been a really, really intriguing discussion for our 150th episode of Democracy Sausage. Yeah, congratulations. So Chris Wallace, Maria Taflaga and Sarah Eisen, thanks so much for being part of it. Cheers. Super fun. Thank you. Bye. And we'll be back uh, next week with another Democracy Sausage. Until then, bye for now. <laughs> 